Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. The question we're answering today is about a piece of history you might not find in your history books. We know from a previous episode that Arizona was once part of Mexico. Producer Maritza Dominguez is picking up where that left off. A listener asked, how did Latinos shape the valley? She wanted to know more about the history of Latinos in the valley and to know if there were any civil rights leaders who helped their community. Wow, that is a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, it is. But I was super excited when we got this question because I myself wanted to know more about the history of Latinos in the Valley. I'm a Latina, I'm a daughter of immigrants, and so I wanted to know more about the Latino experience back in those days. So I found three stories that illustrate how Latinos shaped the Valley into what it is today. We're gonna start off way in the beginning before Phoenix was even developed. In the mid-1800s, what is now Phoenix was a small town, a pueblito, made of adobe houses along the prehistoric Hohokam Canal system. Then, in 1867, the recently married ex-Confederate soldier Jack Swilling arrived into the Salt River Valley with his wife Trinidad Escalante Swilling. Trinidad was a young Mexican woman from Hermosillo, Sonora. She married Jack Swilling at the age of 17, in the St. Augustine Cathedral Church in Tucson. Trinidad Escalante Swilling and Jack Swilling then become involved in bridging the gap between Anglos and Mexicanos. This is Christine Marin, a retired professor from Arizona State University and the founder of the Chicano Chicana Research Collection and Archives at ASU. She spent her life learning the history of Latinos in the Valley. Now, back to the 1800s. Trinidad used Catholicism to bridge the gap between the two communities. She'd hold mass in her home for Catholics in the Valley. This helped immensely because Swilling later modernized the Hohokam Canal system with the labor of Mexican workers. Many, many, many Mexicanos came from Mexico to work in the irrigation canals and developing the canals and developing waterways and making sure that water was coming in from the Salt River. Salt River flowing constantly, but at the same time, farming was occurring and there was a need to develop irrigation canals to build uh, ways for farmers to grow their products. With water flowing into the Salt River Valley, Phoenix began to develop. This is why Jack Swilling is often called the father of Phoenix, making Trinidad a Mexican woman, the mother of Phoenix. Her influence reached far and wide, even out to the children in the community. So she was involved in the history of building early education and the concept of education in Phoenix. With a steady flow of water coming into the Salt River Valley, agriculture took off in the area. Mexican workers built the canal system that enabled Arizona to develop its five C's of economy. To Christine, Latinos helped the valley become what it is today. We built the valley through our labor. We built the valley through our education. We built the labor uh, force that generated uh, the productions of fields in the agricultural industry, the mining industry, uh, all of these industries that uh, have made Arizona.
the first half of the 1900s, around 10 to 15% of people living in Phoenix were Hispanic. Cotton was a major product grown in the valley that took off in Arizona in the early 1900s and during World War I. Here's a short explanation about how this affected migrant workers from a documentary in 1985 called Arizona History, a Chicano Perspective. The war created a sharp demand for long, stable cotton. Agents of the Arizona Cotton Growers Association recruited thousands of workers in Mexico for work on cotton farms in the Salt River Valley. In 1920, the sale of cotton dropped from $1.25 per pound to 17 cents. Farmers walked away from their unprofitable land and cut loose cotton workers, stranding almost 20,000 migrant workers in the valley. Although transportation fees had been deducted from the pay of the Mexicano workers, growers did not give them return passage. Thousands of Mexicano workers were left stranded, many without pay, starving and with no means of getting back to their country. The Mexican government had to step in to bring the cotton pickers home, but many other Mexican workers stayed in Phoenix. During the early 20th century, Mexican workers made up the majority of the labor forces in the agricultural economy, including those in citrus and grain farming. Many of the workers would go on and settle into the area, and a new generation of Mexican-Americans began. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. World War II began in the U.S. in 1941. In my research, I found from the very extensive and illuminating Hispanic Historic Property Survey by the City of Phoenix that hundreds of thousands of Mexican-Americans in the country would serve in the war, including many from Arizona. The Hispanic has always been very patriotic. He is a patriot. He um, loves this country. This is Ray Martinez, a Mexican-American who grew up most of his life in Phoenix after moving from Tempe as a child. Before the war, he taught boxing and coached a girls' softball team for the city of Phoenix. Once World War II began, he'd go to army recruits looking to join, eventually becoming part of the Navy. The audio you're hearing of Ray is from an interview in 1993 conducted by Carlos Jurado for the Braun Sacred Heart Center. While Latinos fought in the war, mothers and wives of soldiers created their own organization to help with the war effort, such as raising money for the war effort by selling war bonds, by becoming involved in the Red Cross, when the Mexican-American veterans came home, they came back with a sense of unity, ready to be treated as equals with their white counterparts. But not all Phoenicians felt this way. Ray Martinez talks about how he felt once he came home. So when we got out of the service, some of us knew we had a mission because we were not going to go back to the discrimination we had suffered before, even though when the war came on it eased up some, but not completely. But we were determined that, my golly, you know, now's the time to do something. So when we organized the post, this was one of our real motivating reasons for organizing. 
The American Legion is an organization supporting veterans and their family. They do this through locations called posts across the country. Ray and other World War II Latino veterans created the first Hispanic American Legion called Post 41 in Phoenix. The post still stands in the Grant Park neighborhood near Phoenix's downtown. It quickly became a place where members organized to desegregate the valley. Their first act was helping Tempe veterans desegregate the Tempe Beach Pool. Their second major win was integrating public veteran housing. Of course, during the war, there was a shortage of housing, and there were no houses or, or public housing, anything built during the war. So, I mean, after the war, veterans came home and they had to double up with others. I mean, there's 10 or 12 living to a house, and it was a very awful situation, you know, and we were very much concerned about it, and so were the officials. The city of Phoenix quickly made moves to build emergency housing. However, their plans were to make separate housing for white, Hispanic, and black veterans. White housing would be located in the Garfield neighborhood north of Van Buren Street. The Hispanic housing would be located at the site of an old dump, what is now 16th Street and Buckeye Road. Ray Martinez spoke with the city manager, Roy Hines, about his concerns in 1946. Says where the old dump was, says, yeah, I says, but look, we're going to fill it in and I'll promise you, make it real nice. Says, you have my word on it. I said, no, because we had decided our own committee, we would not accept anything but integration on veterans housing. Some members of the Garfield neighborhood created their own association to protect their property and claimed if Mexican Americans moved into the area, it would lower the value of their property and bring in crime. One man campaigned to keep Hispanics out of the area. That was Eddie Poole, a local businessman. In an article by Arizona Republic on the 4th of July in 1946, Mr. Poole said, we are not fighting Mexican or Spanish Americans or any other race. He goes on to say he was fighting the shacks that would be built. Ray recalled a different time when Eddie got up in front of the city council saying, And he spoke of uh, Mexicans in the neighborhood and crime would go up and, and rape would go up and women are, your women are going to be molested. This is Ray from a documentary in 1985, Arizona History Chicano Perspective. Ray goes on to say this kind of presentation from Mr. Poole shocked the council. When Poole had finished, Ray finally got his chance to speak in front of the council. Speaking along the same lines that we could contribute to the community, that we were seeking a place for our families and our children, and that we had, again, fought side by side, lived together. We could do the same thing here. In the end, they won they were able to integrate veteran housing for white and Hispanic veterans. These Hispanic civil rights movements were not exclusive to Post 41. There were ongoing efforts to desegregate school buildings. In those times, it was legal to send Hispanic children to what they called, quote, Mexican schools. That were developed and built in our state of Arizona, specifically for Mexican-American children with the idea that educators had as soon as you learn English, as soon as you become more assimilated into the American way of life and become Americanized, the better you can speak English, then we'll put you over there with the Americans, they used to call them. Well, you can become an American when you once you start speaking better English. A group of Mexican-Americans in Tolleson in 1950 formed a committee to challenge the education system 
saying their children received a poorer quality of education. They received local help from lawyers and filed a suit in 1952 against the Tolleson School District. After the lengthy court battle in the United States District Court of Arizona, a judge sided in favor of the committee. This case would go on to be referenced in the argument for Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. That case would desegregate schools nationally. All the while this was going on, in a small town of Superior, a girl named Mary Rose Garrido was born to a copper miner and homemaker. She grew up seeing her father fight for the rights of miners through strikes and unionization. Um, I saw how people banding together can make change because there was tremendous change after that. She made her way to Phoenix in 1962 to attend the Arizona State University. While in college, she met her husband Earl Wilcox, a young Hispanic man who grew up in the Grant Park neighborhood. She then became Mary Rose Wilcox, and together they got into politics. During the late 60s and early 70s, she saw the farm worker movement and identified with it because it reminded her of the struggles her father went through in the 50s. The next big strike I remember, well, the farm workers always had us, you know, helping in the fields with uh, standing there asking, you know, kind of throwing grapes back and saying, you know, treat your workers better or we would go pick it at Safeways or, you know, some of the stores here. Mary Rose found herself in the presence of Cesar Chavez in 1972. The Arizona state legislator passed a law banning farm workers from joining a union and striking. Chavez would go on a 24-day fast to draw attention to his cause, La Causa. This was not the first time he used this tactic, but it was the only time he would fast in Arizona at the Santa Rita Hall near downtown. The hall was mid-sized community room where everyone would gather. And we would go in, Chavez was fasting, he would come in, say a few words for us, we'd have a lot of prayers because he was very faithful, um, and then we'd have union speeches, why we needed to do this. Many people visited Chavez while he fasted, including Robert Kennedy's son and Coretta Scott King, the wife of Martin Luther King. Mary Rose recalled a moment when she met Coretta. And I was sitting in one of the front of the squares, and uh, I had my baby with me, Yvonne, but at that time was probably less than a, well, maybe about, maybe about 14 months. And Coretta Scott came by, she was shaking hands with all of us, and she picked up my daughter and said, this is our future, you know. And then she gave her back to me. So I didn't talk to her a lot, but just her doing that and emphasizing that the black communities with the brown community was tremendous. These moments in her life stuck with her as a reminder the impact Latinos could make. Soon after, Mary Rose said more Chicanos ran for government and they were elected by the community. And so it was like so moving. And so if all these people can support each other, we can make change. Mary Rose worked for the Maricopa County as a job developer. Then Democratic Senator Dennis DeConcini asked her to work for him. He wanted me to outreach to the Latino community but also uh, to the rural because I came from rural Arizona. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because he taught me how to govern. Uh, he taught me what an elected office is, what an elected person can do. And he taught me how to reach out and help people. You know, you're not in it for yourself. 
She says the job was perfect for her because she was already a rebel. She worked out of the local office, but often traveled to Washington and saw how the political process played out. Nearly 10 years she worked for the senator until she decided it was her time to be a leader. And one day I was doing dishes, looking out the window, and I looked at him, I said, you know what? He says, what? I said, I'm gonna run for city council. I knew it, I knew you would do it one day. And so I ran, I ran against 10 Mexicano males and one Anglo female, and I won. Mary Rose remembers being told she wasn't sophisticated enough to be an elected official, but when she would knock on doors in her neighborhood, women would tell her something different. Oh, we're so glad you're running. You know, you look just like us. Um, You know, and they were like really proud, but never thought it could be possible. She won the election in 1982, making her the first Latina to serve on the Phoenix City Council. During her tenure on the city council, she made sure she made an impact in her community. In her second year, the city was going to close 12 swimming pools, and all those pools were located in poor areas, including the Grant Park neighborhood. And so I went and asked, why are we closing these pools? And they said they're very underused and we could save resources. She didn't understand why they were so underused, so she went out into the community to find out why. It turns out the pools were charging 50 cents per person, and remember, this is 1983. She returned to the council and told them that was too much for these families. You have a family who has six kids. That means... $3 a day in cost for the kids to go swimming, plus buying them food, which you cannot bring food into, so you have to buy, you know, food there. It means getting swimming suits. Families can't afford it. And they said, oh, Mary Rose, you know, you know, you're being too sympathetic. I said, no. So nobody would really listen. If the council didn't make a change, she decided she'd find a way to keep these pools open for the kids and the community. So what I did is I went out, And I got the Phoenix Suns to adopt Harmon Park, APS to adopt Grant Park, Falcon, uh, the Reynolds Aluminum Plant was open. They adopted that. And what we did is we painted their logos on the bottom of the pool, and they jammed the pools all summer because it was free swim. The program would go on to be called Cool Kids with the K. It still exists today. So, you know, to me, it's a minor, like, thing but it's major because you affected so many lives for kids. After 10 years on the Phoenix City Council, she'd go on to run for the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and serve on there from 1982 to 2014. Mary Rose now considers herself semi-retired, but still continues to be very active in politics. Mary Rose and her husband Earl are now restaurant owners of El Portal. This Mexican restaurant has been around since the 1940s. The reason it was open is because the woman who, I have a picture back here, we have a little plaque to her, um, wanted her sons coming home from World War II to have something to do. So she started a restaurant. The restaurant with its red walls and paintings of Cesar Chavez and Martin Luther King now has a new role for the community. And when we bought it, um, we kind of extended it, you know, to a, more of a community place, more of a community gathering. But the pride of the community is here. She's had national leaders like Nancy Pelosi and local leaders like Governor Doug Ducey eat at her restaurant. She's held various gatherings for people in the community to connect with their constituents. Today, 
about a third of people living in Maricopa County are Hispanic or Latino, according to census data. Mary Rose remembers having to be the voice for Latinos and women while on the council, and reflects on the importance of representing her community. If you don't have diversity, you cannot represent people adequately. You cannot have a city council who is not made up of what your population is made up of. You know, and I feel very strongly about that. You are a person of the community, and you better get back to the community. Hey, it's me, Kayla again. Maritza, thank you so much for taking us on that journey to show us how Latinos have impacted and still impact the Valley. Yeah, I learned so much during my reporting, and there's so much that I couldn't include. I hope people are encouraged to seek out more of Arizona's history, and if not, I'm sure I'll be back again reporting more on Arizona history and Latino history. Absolutely. Well, that's it for today. If you have more questions about how Metro Phoenix is changing, submit them to us at valley101.azcentral.com. And if you're a new listener, remember you can go back and listen to old episodes. Let us know what you think by leaving us a rating or review on your podcast listening app. And as always, thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. See you next week.